Specialty Story, session number 212. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians to talk about their specialty, why they chose it, what they like about it, what they would go back and tell their younger self about the specialty. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Dave Margolis, a pediatric bone marrow transplant specialist as a hematologist oncologist. We're going to talk all about his career path, how he ended up there, and his advice for you. We start the conversation by talking about how he first became interested in pediatric hematology oncology. Well, I, I think it goes back to maybe a little bit in medical school, but a lot of residency. I, I do remember uh, in medical school, uh, Dr. Paul Sandel, who, who's now a, a, a friend and a colleague, I remember being inspired by his lecture um, in the second year of medical school. And I remember taking care of a specific patient with Dr. Sandel, a young man by the name of Bear, who happened to have um, aplastic anemia. Uh, now, back in the day, I didn't know what aplastic anemia was, but I remember taking care of Bear with Paul uh, Sandel. And as I reflect on my career, you know, patients, you know, you don't necessarily remember every kid's name uh, and every doctor. But I clearly remember those two and, and the way um, Dr. Sandel um, worked with Bear and his family in a tough situation. And uh, then I got to residency and I, I really was undifferentiated, uh, meaning I didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, during my first year of residency, I really enjoyed working with Dr. Jim Casper who ultimately became my, my mentor for my career. And, and so I think it's a little bit of the subject interested me and the people who I latched onto as mentors, which guided me into this direction. What are some of the biggest traits that make someone be a, a good pediatric hemonc doc? I think it's somebody that um, wants to have longitudinal relationships. I was just reflecting on this with a um, student a week or two ago. You know, Hemonc is one of those areas where you are blessed with being able to follow um, a patient for years and years um, and, and, and develop those, those relationships. Um, somebody who's interested in um, basic science uh, because hematology uh, is very much a, a science-driven field. Uh, and somebody who is willing to you know, deal with lots of different patient populations and hemonc transplants, so wide range of patient, uh, patient population opportunities. And so I, I think that um, you know, the personality traits, you know, somebody who to me, it's somebody who loves science and somebody who loves relationships hmm. are um, and equally 
equally, because I think there are other areas of medicine where one may favor the other a little bit, but uh, hemong transplant, you really get the blending of, of um, that, that science aspect of a medicine blending beautifully with relationship, long-term relationships. Yeah. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions that you're constantly needing to dispel with residents or medical students? Well, I think the first one is you're dealing with death all day long. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think uh, I, I will openly state that um, I have gone to more funerals than many of my peers and other specialties. But the trade-off of that is we have very intense positive relationships with families and patients. And I've probably been to more um, weddings and bar mitzvahs than some of my peers as well because of those intense relationships. Mm. And so the good news in 2021 and beyond is um, fewer patients die from cancer and blood disorders. And the reality will always be that it is going to be an area where uh, there will be patients who die who are under your care. Yeah. I, I think uh, a large percentage of students listening who aren't in medical school, who, who are learning this stuff, we think of cancer and we think of skin cancer and lung cancer and, and other types of cancers that adults get because that's that seems to be more kind of out there uh, in the news with, with the latest celebrity getting diagnosed somewhere. What types of cancers uh, and, and other pathologies are you seeing or pediatric hemonc docs seeing day in and day out? So the, the most common uh, type of cancer in pediatrics is actually a brain tumor. Um, and not all of those require um, uh, an oncologist. Many, of them, many brain tumors require a surgeon. Uh, the, the, the vast... The, the most common um, liquid tumor is leukemia. And at, at any pediatric cancer center, leukemia will probably be the, the group of kids that um, are the highest percentage of kids that are under our care because not all of those brain tumors, kids with brain tumors require our care. Uh, then there are abdominal tumors. Uh, of childhood, something called Wilms tumor and something called neuroblastoma. Uh, those require uh, a, pedi a pediatric hemonc physician's care. Um, and so I think, and, and then the last group would be bone tumors, um, uh, osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma are the two bone tumors that are the most common. And so uh, leukemia and lymphoma, I didn't mention lymphoma, but Hodgkin's disease, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, brain tumors, Ewing sarcoma, osteosarcoma, and Wilms and uh, neuroblastoma are by far and away the bulk of the cancers. Yeah. For the the student listening to this who loves kind of the, the Sherlock Holmes of trying to figure out what's going on, as a subspecialist, how many of the patients that come to you are already diagnosed with something and you're there for, for treatment and management versus patients coming to you potentially with a mass or potentially with an abnormal lab and you're working them up trying to figure out what's going on? 
so, so I'm a bone marrow transplant specialist. So by the time they get to me, they <laughs> usually have their diagnosis. Yeah. But uh, for my colleagues that are um, general uh, peds hemonc, we get to play detective an awful lot. It's actually a, a real fun part of the job um, because somebody, a, a, a primary care physician may identify a mass or may identify a lymph node uh, or may, may identify an abnormal lab value, uh, but the, the differential diagnosis, the possibilities that um, that that problem could be are pretty vast. Mm. So most of the time, we get to play detective and, and come to a diagnosis. Not all, but most of the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, being Sherlock Holmes is actually part of the fun of being a pediatric bone marrow transplant hemonc person because we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what Mother Nature's throwing at us. Mm-hmm. Talk about the the bone marrow transplant side of things. What are you doing with the patients as a bone marrow transplant specialist? Well, we we, uh, we change people's bone marrow systems and immune systems, and so uh, the way I like to describe it to some you know, some of the kids is: if your immune system is operating on Mac and you're a PC person, we want to train <laughs> switch you to a PC. If you're a PC person, we'll switch you to a Mac. <laughs> but we, we, we work on changing the operating system of your blood forming system and immune system to fix the underlying problem, which is likely due to your blood, blood forming and immune systems. And so we spend a lot of time uh, managing the complications that come along with switching from Mac or PC or PC to Mac. <laughs> As a tech nerd, I, I love that analogy. That's awesome. Um how how much of your as a bone marrow specialist? How how much of that is procedure based? Uh, very little of it actually, because the procedure is really um, a small part of it. That the donor donates the bone marrow, um, or we put it in the cells that go in, just like a fancy blood transfusion. So we I, I, we do minimal procedures. We do bone marrow harvests. We do bone marrow aspirates. We do spinal taps. But we really don't do a whole lot of surgery like our kidney transplant and liver transplant um, and heart transplant colleagues, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the surgeons. So we, we spend an awful lot of time trying to deal with the immune effects of the, the treatments we use to, to get that transplant in. Yeah. What does a typical day look like? Oh, uh, you know, when... When we're taking care of patients, a typical day, uh, you know, every, everything's on the computer now. So depending on, on, on how compulsive one is, you can actually wake up, roll over, and look at your patient's labs. So <laughs> it's not unusual for me to do that. Yeah, it's, you know, we're, we're waiting for somebody's white cells to grow. And so we, 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 we look at a complete blood count. When I've got a kid who's 13, 14, 15 days after his or her bone marrow transplant, I literally will wake up, look at the CBC, and see what's going on. Um, so, <laughs> now that that some may think that that's crazy, but it, it sort of helps frame my day, knowing what's going on um, with my patient's blood forming system. Mm. Traditionally, um, like to see we, we round, for example, at eight thirty with the team, and it's multi- multidisciplinary rounds. Uh, on a good day, I like to see my patients before rounds, so it. It means getting up to the ward, 
7.30, quarter to 8, something like that. Seeing the patients um, so we're ready to round. Rounds usually take about an hour, uh, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less. And then it's just managing problems and dealing with issues all day long. And if, you know, if you like I, I walk around and, and uh, um, you never know what Mother Nature is going to throw at the patients. And so dealing with new fevers and de- dealing with new complications, um, uh, seeing new patients in the clinic uh, or on a good day, getting a kid ready to, to be discharged to go home. Yeah. Uh, you know, I always, I always tell my wife, uh, I, I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised if I'm leaving before five o'clock in the evening. <laughs> and I'm always disappointed if I'm here past six o'clock in the evening. Yeah. So uh, it's a, it's a good day's work. It keeps you honest. Yeah. Good. For the, for Hemonc, the, the subspecialty of Hemonc in pediatrics, what is the likelihood that if you're on call at home, you, you get called in in the middle of the night for some sort of emergency that you need to come in for? So, yeah, I don't know what it's like in a, in a regular general hemon practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for me, as a bone marrow transplant doctor over the years, I probably come in less than 10 times a year in the middle of the night. Mm. Um, but I, I, I decided a long time ago, uh, and this is based on one of my mentors, Paul Scott. When I was a fellow, I asked Dr. Scott, so, so when do I come in when I'm on call? <laughs> and, and his answer was, if you think about coming in, you come in. Yeah. And that's sort of the way I, 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 I run my life. So if, if I'm dealing with a new diagnosis, I'll come in at that time because I, I would want I would want an attending physician coming in and explaining to my family what was going on if somebody was throwing the word cancer. Now, not everybody feels that way, but that, that's the way I've kind of run my life. Um, and if that's the case, you know, you're on, it depends how big of a group practice you're in. Um, you know, I, I, I think more than five times a year is likely under under 15 times a year is probably likely and then the the where you where you fall in that uh, will depend on the team of people you work with and the culture of your uh, institution yeah do you do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital oh god yes and i'm very proud of the fact and i'm i'm blessed with a a wonderful spouse and now two adult daughters um who who have let me have that balance where um, I've always said one A is family and one B are my patients. And sometimes one A and one B flip and my family understands that. But um, I never missed because of it's work colleagues. My mentors got me to my kids dance recitals. Um, I've never been on, I've always been able to get to dance recitals. I got to sporting events. Um, I now make my call schedule based on the Packers call schedule. Based on the, <laughs> it's not the Packers call schedule, it's their NFL schedule, but that does impact my call schedule. Yeah. Uh, and, and has for years. Uh, uh, there was a time where there were only two of us doing bone marrow transplant. So we were theoretically on every other day. And, and, and Dr. Castro is a huge uh, Wisconsin uh, football fan. I was a huge, I am a huge Packer football fan. So, I always took Saturdays and he always took Sundays. 
But uh, work-life balance is important. And I do think chemonk transplant is one of those areas where you can, um, it's one of the reasons I chose it, where we, we all work very hard, but most of our families know exactly who we are and we're able to get to those life cycle events um, uh, period in the story. Yeah. What does the training path look like to end up as a bone marrow specialist? So it's uh, uh, three years of residency in pediatrics and then three years of fellowship in Hemonc. Um, often in Hemonc, we do uh, um, two years in the lab or uh, others will try to do uh, two years getting a, a graduate degree. Um, I chose the lab path. And, uh, and then for bone marrow transplant, there are some one-year fellowships. It's not an ACGME-approved fellowship. Mm. There are some apprenticeships. There's some you just get a job and you, and, and you take it. So that's a little bit of a, a blend right now. So it's a good six years plus. Yeah, it takes, takes a little while, um, but, but it sounds like it's well worth it on the other end. For It has been in my case. That's good. For the osteopathic student listening to this, any any kind of negative bias that they need to overcome for this specialty? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, we are a, I like to call, I, I like to say we are a deophilic institution. <laughs> uh, some, some of my favorite uh, doctors and some of my own personal doctors over the years uh, have DO after their name. Uh, so it, as far as it, it, as far as I'm concerned, there, there is no hurdle to overcome mm. But we, we might be a little bit more enlightened than, than maybe some other institutions. But we've had chief residents be DOs. We've had program leaders be DOs. And, yes. and so I think that um, we, we've had fellows who are DOs. And so we, um, we're pretty agnostic whether you're MD or DO. We just want you to be an intellectually curious, uh, great person. And uh, we, we don't care so much about whether you're a DO or an MD. Nice. For um, for the future primary care doc who's not going to subspecialize, for the future pediatrician listening to this, what do you want them to know about bone marrow transplant or, or hemonc in general for the pediatric population? I want them to know that more and more of their patients will be survivors. And so, uh, you know, my friends in general pediatrics, and I, I still keep in t- close touch with some of my colleagues from residency, you know, a couple times in your career will you have to diagnose cancer. Um, and the good news is more and more of those times where you diagnose cancer, you will get those patients back and they will be long-term survivors in your clinic. And so it's our responsibility to keep those relationships going when the patient is uh, being cared for. And it's um, our responsibility to work with our general pediatricians long-term. What other specialties do you work the closest with? Uh, I personally work a lot with critical care, uh, pediatric critical care, pediatric emergency medicine. Mm. Um, we, we, We talk to the ER when anybody comes in and then we, we do have a tendency to have our patients get sick. So we work a lot with critical care, um, pediatric infectious diseases, mm-hmm. because uh, we, we dismantle immune systems. And so our patients are at risk for um, uh, getting infections. Uh, and then 
dermatology and gastroenterology, we, we really interface with just about everybody. But, you know, the, the routine ones that, you know, it doesn't surprise me if I, I, I communicate with them like constantly. Um, uh, it, it, it's those other, it, it's the ones we talked about. Yeah. For interacting with the, the emergency medicine docs, is that on initial presentation or is that after treatment, immune system suppressed, similar to like uh, the type one diabetic showing up with DKA? It's like, that's their initial presentation. Are, are the, the hemonc patients showing up like that or is that just a sequelae of their treatment? It's usually a sequelae of the treatment. Yeah, interesting. It, it usually is. You know, there, there's a complication and, you know, they're, they're at home and they get a fever or they're home and they get a nosebleed and something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into all this? It's <laughs> uh, a good question. Um, I don't know. Uh, going back to the decision-making, um, uh, I'm glad that you can have work-life balance. The, the, I think it's really important. I, I mm -hmm. keep trying to tell our residents that it, it, it is important to have work-life balance and you can have work-life balance um, in many areas, including HEMOC. Yeah. And, and, and the importance of work-life balance. I, I've seen too many people get um, not, not, not pay as much attention to work-life balance as maybe they should. Yeah. Yeah, it's important. What do you like the most about being a, a pediatric HEMOC and, and bone marrow transplant specialist? It's the doctor-patient relationships. That's easy. It, it, it's it's. I'm looking at my board now, uh, pictures of some of the kids I've taken care of over the years, and it's just those memories and, and the impact you make on a patient and a family. Yeah. Uh, so one of the the kind of running jokes about picking specialties is, are medical students love the kids but hate the parents. Yeah. What is your recommendation for? Uh, for interacting with parents during uh, a tough time, like a diagnosis uh, of cancer. It's one of the great joys that, uh, that, that, that we do is we, we have these relationships with the kids and their families. And, um, ironically, I was just texted a few minutes ago about one of our more challenging families, our more, more, more challenging parents, but yeah, that's okay. That's, that's part of the job. Um, the, the parents, you know, can you only imagine what it was like to take care of me when my kid was in the <laughs> hospital when she was when she was eight months old? Hmm. And, and so, you know, the parents just want their kids to do well. Yeah. And, and, and it's our job to work with them and and um, help explain that to them. And so uh, I, I, I would not be afraid of the parents. I really wouldn't. Yeah. I, I think that. Um, put yourself in those parents' shoes and you realize very quickly, um, uh, what, what it's like. And, uh, you don't have to be a parent to be a great pediatrician, yeah. but I learned from one of my mentors when you are a parent to take what you've learned and integrate that to your career as a pediatrician. And that was really good advice. I, I, I came very close to leaving Hemonk after our youngest was born in the first year of her life because I, I didn't know if I could separate the two. And I had a wonderful mentor who, who helped me 
understand that th- those boundaries and, and, and how to leverage being a parent to make one potentially um, uh, an outstanding uh, pediatric hematologist, oncologist, and not ignore the feelings I had as a young parent, but rather exploiting those feelings um, to help care for other children. Yeah. Yeah. At the core of all that, it's just, it's empathy, right? Just, just yep. empathy. I, I, I think that that is probably, yeah, the, um, the, the, the term empathy matters is very, very true. Yeah. What do you like the least about the specialty? I don't like it when children die. Um, uh, so that's, well, 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 I said before, it doesn't happen very often. It, yeah. it definitely sticks with you. It yeah. definitely sticks with you. Um, uh, so I think that's, yeah. Is there a common yeah. thread of, of patients who don't do well, given the, the moderate advancements in medications? Not necessarily. Well, it's relapse disease most often. Mm-hmm. It's relapse disease and complications. Yeah. And so, um, and, and as a, you know, hemonc transplant doctor, um, sometimes you feel you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So, you know, if, if, if we, um, when a child dies, when the disease relapse, you wonder, well, what, what, what could we have done more intensely to, to fight the cancer? And then when the, the, the child dies of a complication from the treatment, you go, well, could we have gotten away with less? So mm-hmm. th- th- that, there, there's always that healthy second guessing that goes on that, that you learn from. Yeah. And, um, and we actually do that in an organized fashion. We actually review all of our deaths and we, we take that seriously. And if uh, somebody grants us the honor of doing an autopsy, we, 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 we come together as a, as a team and we review the autopsy and we see what we can learn so we can always try to prevent that from happening. Yeah. What major changes uh, are coming to the field that people coming up their training should be aware of, whether that's technology or medications or anything like that? I think it's going to be more and more individualized targeted therapy. I think that gene therapy will replace some of what we do in bone marrow transplant. Mm -hmm. I think individualized cellular therapy will replace some of what we do in bone marrow transplant. I think that there will be advancements in chemotherapy that may uh, limit when we need to do transplants. And so the best example I have is when I was young, when I was a resident, um, an even young faculty member, uh, the most common indication for a bone marrow transplant uh, was chronic myelogenous leukemia. And then uh, the, there's a wonderful partnership between academic medicine and pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Dr. Brian Drucker helped identify um, Gleevec, which is also known as imatinib. And that was a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. That is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that uh, treats CML much more intelligently than we used to. And guess what? CML is almost never an indication for transplant anymore. It's the, I, I can't remember the last time we transplanted somebody for CML. And so as we learn more and more about the biology of cancers, I'm hoping we'll have more and more examples of CML where we can 
where we can turn it into a chronic disease and treat it with much safer tools. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where potentially some of these cancers are are screened at birth for newborn screening so that we can give gene therapy when when the the dose can be less and and less harmful for patients? Well, I I think some like like sickle cell anemia is not a cancer, but I do think that in our lifetimes, the newborn screen for sickle cell anemia is already there. Yeah. And, and I do hope that we will be using gene therapy to, um, to correct, um, thalassemias and sickle cell anemia. Yeah. Um, I, I do, and I, I, you know, that, that was promised to me when I was a, <laughs> a resident and I, I, I look at my, the medical students now and say, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that that will occur in your lifetime. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I think that, uh, my hope for cancer is, that the vaccines were the, the, the vaccine technology, the mRNA vaccine technology. Um, when, I, when I was younger and I did research in the lab at the blood center of Wisconsin, uh, I told my kids that I was uh, trying to come up with a cancer vaccine. And I do think that with the improved biology understanding and understanding the immune systems, I'm hoping kids can go to the doctor and get certain cancer vaccines when they're young to help our immune systems prevent some of the cancers that may otherwise blossom. That'd be incredible. I do think that there's hope for that. Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a a bone marrow specialist? Oh God. Yes. I, I, I I love what I do. I, um, I, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I've got a family, um, that deals with me. And I've got a um, team here that I love working with and, and patients that I love working with. And so, you know, I, I, my, my hope for everybody is that they can enjoy their lives as much as I do. How much of your enjoyment comes from dyeing your hair green? <laughs> <laughs> um, the dyeing my hair green is a byproduct of the things I love to do, <laughs> which is, um, it's a little bit of work-life balance there, right? It's, it's, uh, um, taking my passion for, uh, going to Bucks games and, and integrating that with, uh, caring for kids and, and, and caring for, um, uh, not only the physical health of the kid, but keeping them in the game. Yeah. And so, uh, the, the fact that they let me dye my hair green <laughs> should tell you how great of a gig I've got. Yeah. And that my wife lets me come home with this horribly <laughs> smelling hair and, 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 and that uh, she's even part of the team and I have to spend you know an hour washing it out because it smells horribly. <laughs> um, and she, she takes one for the team that way. That's, that's awesome. Uh, a great, great article for everyone to just Google um, and, and find you there. Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this, thinking about pediatric hemonc and, and potentially bone marrow transplant? Well, I, w- I would say for the pre-med students, I was pre-med, pre-law. I couldn't be happier with choosing med- medicine. And for the um, medical students looking to go into a field, th- there's there's lots of rewarding areas in medicine. Find the area that fits with you and your own personality I, 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 and your skill set. You know, the, there is not enough malpractice insurance in the world 
for me to be a surgeon. So um, I just, I, I don't tinker. I, I, my, my hands don't work that way. My eyes don't work that way. So find what, you know, play to your strengths, limit your weaknesses, and make sure you love what you do. All right, there you have it. Again, Dr. Dave Margolis. If you want to go check out the green hair, man, uh, just Google David Margolis, MD, green hair, and you will find him, uh, a great picture of him taking care of patients and his love of the Wisconsin, the Milwaukee uh, basketball team there. And you'll find him with his green hair and his love of the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, I hope he had a good year last year with them winning the NBA championship. So thank you, Dr. Dave Margolis, for coming on the podcast and talking all about bone marrow transplantation for the pediatric population. If you found this helpful, I would love for you to subscribe to this podcast so you get this episode or all new episodes every week when they come out. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.